you would please open in the Bible to Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. It's on page 809 in the Pew Bible or on page 8 in the program. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. If you would open it in front of you, it would be good. And if you'd please stand. This is Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The word of the Lord. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd be pleased to send your Holy Spirit upon us this morning, that you give us grace to hear your word, to believe it, to obey it, Father, and to rejoice in it. For Jesus' sake, amen. Please be seated. Well, this morning you're going to get uh, two sermons for the price of one. Uh, two sermons, one very brief, uh, one a bit longer. Uh, if you have the program there in front of you on page 9, you'll find space for a few notes. You might want to, this morning, draw a line down the middle of the page because, as I said, I'm going to give you, going to give you two sermons. Uh, the left hand can be sermon number 1, the right hand can be sermon number 2. And let me begin with sermon number 1. Uh, the title for sermon number 1 is Temptation and Victory in the Christian Life. If you were to do a Google search later today uh, on Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 through 11, uh, you would very likely find a sermon or two, maybe a whole lot of sermons, if your experience is anything like mine, that sound a lot like what I'm going to give as sermon number one, temptation and victory in the Christian life. And it would deal with these verses as we are very familiar with. Uh, the temptation of Jesus, something recorded in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John does not record it, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke do record it, so it's pretty familiar to us. We've all heard these verses, probably. If you've been to church before, you've most likely heard these verses. You may have a strong feeling about these verses. And uh, if you did a Google search, you'd, you'd find some, some sermons along the lines I'm about to suggest to you. Uh, the sermon would go a little bit like this. Jesus was tempted. Jesus, like you and me, was tempted. And when he was tempted, Jesus said no to sin. Like you and I, 
should say no to sin. So point number one of sermon number one would be something like we should say no to temptation. Jesus did and we should say no to temptation. Second point, Jesus answered each temptation with a Bible quote, and he does. If you look down the page, you'll see that Jesus responds to the temptations thrown at him by Satan. In verse 4, he quotes from the Old Testament, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You'll see uh, that is a quotation that uh, comes to us from, uh, as the footnotes point out, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. That's how Jesus responded to the first temptation. Uh, in the second temptation, uh, in verse 6, Jesus responds uh, with uh, a different Bible verse. And this one, the footnotes tell us, is from uh, Psalm, verse, Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. And then, a little later, uh, Jesus is taken to an even higher viewpoint, a mountain. And the devil shows him all the kingdoms of the world uh, he tempts Jesus and promises to give these things to Jesus. And in verse 10, Jesus responds once again to this temptation with yet another Bible verse. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Again, quoting here from the uh, book of Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6 verse 13 and uh, verse 16. Uh, so, if you were listening to Sermon 1, you would have uh, a, a, instructions not to sin, like Jesus did not sin, and we would have instructions to respond to the temptations that we experience by quoting the Bible. And, uh, and then the third application point might possibly be, notice in verse 11 that the angels came and ministered to Jesus. And so you and I, when we resist temptation, we can also expect that we will be ministered to, that we'll be encouraged and helped by the uh, presence of God here in the form of angels. And we can expect that sort of encouragement and support as we resist sin and temptation in our life. And uh, that's sermon number one in a nutshell. It might go on for 20 or 30 minutes. It might contain a lot of very practical advice on things you can do when you struggle with sin. It might leave you with a wonderful to-do list and things you can take home. Very practical. When you face temptation now, you know exactly what to do until you do face sin. And then you realize, well, that didn't go exactly the way I thought. Where are the ministering angels now? Uh, you don't have to live the Christian life very long to bump into the limitations of Sermon 1. So I want to suggest to you that Sermon 1, even though it's extremely popular, even though it's probably in a, probably in a really simplified form, possibly what we carry around in our heads with us, okay, I'm being tempted, I need to quote the Bible, right? Had a conversation about that just this week. Someone was talking about ongoing temptation and struggle with sin, and, and we were talking about it, and he, one of the conclusions was he needs, to, he needs to quote the Bible and claim these biblical promises. That's sermon number one. That's column number one. We'll come back to it. Let me give you sermon number two. Okay, the first sermon was temptation and victory in the Christian life. Sermon number two is temptation and victory in Christ's life. Those may sound like not very dramatic differences, 
But those titles actually underscore extremely significant differences. And I want to suggest that sermon number two, which I'm going to spend a little more time on now, actually reflects, I think, more faithfully why Matthew records this, why Mark and Luke record it, and why it matters so much to you and me today. It is not actually going to give us a little checklist, some practical resources. It's actually going to give us an exclamation point and a promise that has meaning to you and me as we gather here at MetroCrest today. So temptation and victory in Christ's life. Two points. Temptation, verses 1 to 10, and victory, verse 11. So read with me along as we make our way again through this passage. Uh, Verse 1. Then, that is following on from John the Baptist in chapter 3. Chapter 3, we looked at that a few months, a few, few weeks ago. Back during Advent, we looked at John the Baptist. Well, chapter 4 picks up with John the Baptist after Jesus' baptism. In, in fact, Mark says it's immediately after. Uh, Matthew just says that it follows. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, it is true the ESV editors have labeled this the temptation of Jesus, but this is a very specific and even a a kind of unique set of temptations. These are not actually temptations you're likely to face this afternoon. All right? This is a unique set of temptations, a unique situation where Jesus was being tempted. And there's so much about this that is striking. In chapter 4, verse 1, we find out that the devil doesn't sneak up on Jesus. Jesus doesn't stumble into temptation. That happens to me all the time. No, it says that Jesus was led up by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit leads Jesus. In fact, in Mark's gospel, Mark uses the Greek word ekbalai, which means literally he was cast out. He was driven out. That's the word the ESV editors, translators choose to use. He was driven, led, driven. It was the Holy Spirit at work that brings Jesus into the wilderness specifically to be tempted by the devil. This is not something Jesus stumbled into. This wasn't an accident. This was actually the work of the same spirit at work in Mary that brought Jesus into the world. Uh, It's the same spirit we read about literally in the preceding verses when Jesus was being baptized The Spirit of God descended on him like a dove, coming to rest on him. That same Spirit, which was pointing us towards Jesus, that same Spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness specifically to be tempted by the devil. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all agree on that. They use slightly different words to describe exactly the same thing. Now, What I envision here is, is, as I said, a unique set of temptations. Uh, When I was a boy, I was a big fan of uh, wrestling. Uh, It was a big thing in Mississippi, and I'm talking about TV wrestling, not high school wrestling, TV wrestling, and the guys in the crazy costumes. And Well, when I was growing up, that 
that passes entertainment in Tupelo, Mississippi, and I was a big fan of that. And my favorite kind of wrestling was a cage match. A cage match where you had one wrestler pitted against another wrestler in the context of a situation that was very specific. They couldn't get out of it. They were in a cage match. Well, forgive the, uh, the uh, imaginative illustration, but it's almost like what's being described here is not a pretend, like on wrestling, but a very real cage match. In one quarter is the devil, Satan. Jesus identifies him later. We know exactly who we're talking about, Satan. And in the other corner is Jesus. That's the cage match that's being described. This is, this is a unique situation in a way. Nothing like this is, is really seen. The story of Job has a, an interesting parallel. I, I, I suspect Matthew, who was himself Jewish, had a, an awareness of the similarity between what's being described and what Job endured. But here we have a cage match between Jesus and Satan. And it's in the context of that cage match where Jesus, in the wilderness, hungry, he hasn't eaten for 40 days. The only person I know who's fasted anything like 40 days is Colton Huckabee, and he's sitting at the back of the room. I don't think you, did you fast 40 days? Why did you fast? 30 days. days. Colton Huckabee's fasted 30 days. I knew Colton Huckabee after he'd fasted for 30 days. It was not a pretty sight. Uh, It's no fun. Well, Jesus was 10 days more than that. In the wilderness, he was no doubt very, very hungry. In his humanity, he was as weak as you can possibly be and still be alive. That's this situation, this unique situation that that we bump into here, that we're told about here. And it's in that context that we have three temptations. Wasn't Jesus stumbling through life uh, making mistakes. This is, this is Jesus at his weakest facing three extraordinary temptations. And as, as I said, you're not likely to face these temptations. So Jesus here is enduring three amazing temptations. Look at the temptations that the devil, Satan, throws at Jesus. Verse 3, the tempter came to Jesus and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now pause for a moment. Read the words of that temptation very very, uh, carefully. If you are the son of God, why is that an if in the devil's mind? Well, because of chapter three. Now, Isaiah told us that the Messiah, the Christ, the suffering servant, would not be immediately apparent. We wouldn't necessarily just see him and think, oh, that's the Messiah. He had no form of comeliness. He he was not someone who was especially uh, holy looking. He was in appearance like the rest of us. He was perfectly normal looking. But in Matthew chapter 3, this is where Jesus' ministry goes from a small circle to a larger circle. It's John the Baptist who is ordained by God to reveal to all the people who come out from Jerusalem to be baptized. As they saw Jesus coming, it's John the Baptist who was 
the one to say, the Lamb of God. That's who this is. And when Jesus was baptized, as he identified himself with sinners like you and me, at that very moment, we get this glorious family portrait of the Trinity, where we see the, we, we hear the voice of the Father, as the clouds part, we hear the voice of the Father, we see the Son, and the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus in his humanity. The Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descends on Jesus, and then there is this voice from heaven, verse 17, chapter 3, verse 17, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased been reading scholars this week who point out that until this point, it is possible, and in fact, based on what we read in chapter 4, likely that Satan, who is not omniscient, Satan is not all-knowing. He's very smart, and he knows you and me really, really well, so it almost feels like he's omniscient, but he's not omniscient. He'd like to think he is. He'd like for us to think he is, but he's not omniscient. So it may well be that Matthew chapter 3, verse 17 describes the moment that not only John, not only the people there watching the baptism, but maybe Satan himself at that very point finally realized, oh, wait a minute. This is, this is the fulfillment of that promise back in Genesis chapter 2 where a son of a woman would come and crush my head. Some scholars I read this week, I'll mention one in a moment, made quite a lot out of this, that, that Satan realized, wait a minute, this is, this is really bad news for me. I've been anticipating this day for a long time. I, no one else was paying attention to the prophets, but Satan was, just like Herod, who wanted to know exactly where that baby was, well, Herod didn't fully understand. The Magi didn't fully understand. Satan had not properly and fully understood, maybe until this point. Certainly, it was a, a moment of extreme spiritual clarification. It was meant to be. And Satan was one of the observers who made notes. So the very first temptation that he throws at Jesus in this cage match from his corner, his first temptation is, if you are the Son of God, then command these stones to become loaves of bread. You've got the power. He's not arguing about that. He's saying, if that's true, then command these stones to become loaves of bread. It hardly sounds like a temptation except that it was a temptation. The temptation was to do something that God had not willed for Jesus to do. Now that is a refined temptation. My experience of temptation is not like that one very often. My experience of temptation is way down the temptation scale. But that's where the devil starts with Jesus, this refined temptation. Do something that you have the power to do, but God hasn't told you to do it. And so Jesus responds with a Bible verse, quoting from the Old Testament law. Jesus answered, it is written. I love that introduction. It is written. Jesus knew he was quoting the scriptures. There is power in the scriptures. I want to be clear about that. There is power in the scriptures. And so Jesus uses the scriptures to respond to this temptation. He says, 
uh, quoting from Deuteronomy, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, Jesus knew where his instructions came from. He knew where his nourishment came from. His nourishment was not to come from his own insistence upon doing his desired thing to do. But his nourishment, his strength came from living on the word that comes from the mouth of God. The same God who spoke in Matthew chapter 3 verse 17. Jesus knew that's where his nourishment came from. Temptation 1. Temptation 2, once again, we see in verse 5. The devil took Jesus to the holy city, that's Jerusalem, no doubt, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, the most, the most obvious visible place that Jesus could possibly go, the, the place in the center of the holy city. And Satan said to Jesus, if you are the son of God. See, this is the second time he's introduced a question, a tempting question with that formula. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, quoting the Old Testament, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now that's a very, very clever temptation. And again, it's a unique temptation. You see, Jesus had just responded to Satan by saying, I'm not going to do that, even though, humanly speaking, I'm hungry. I'm not going to do that because God hasn't willed for me to do that. In his word, I live on his word. I depend on what he says to me. So what does the Satan do? What does the devil do? He responds to Jesus with a very clever move here in this cage match. He actually quotes the Bible back to Jesus. He says, hold on a minute, hold on a minute. There's, there are words in the Bible spoken about the Son of God, the promised Messiah, the coming one. And these are two promises. He will command his angels concerning you. That is, the angels will protect him. The angels will prevent him from injuring. On their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. You see how clever the devil is being? He's using the Bible back to Jesus. He's quoting the Bible fairly accurately. But notice how Jesus responds to this second temptation in the cage match. He says, Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now that, brothers and sisters, is the ultimate response to flawed, human, man-centered proof texting. All right? Just to put it in really simple terms, Jesus saw right through it. Because Jesus had not only the the pages of the Bible, as precious and holy as they are, as Jesus himself acknowledges, but he also has the wisdom and the understanding that comes from the Holy Spirit opening the Bible to him in such a way, with wisdom, he is able to apply the Bible in this unique situation. Unlike any temptation ever thrown at anyone, Jesus had the wisdom to know that, yes, that's, that is an accurate quote of the Bible, but it doesn't apply. It, it's not, a, it's not an, a, a quotation that is being applied appropriately, correctly, faithfully. No, he says, you're not to put the Lord your God to the test. So Jesus faces this second unique, extraordinary temptation And he responds with wisdom and he says no to the devil's temptation. 
And then in verse 9, there's a sense in which Satan, in his corner of the cage, gets so desperate that he does something unimaginable. Verse 9. All these things I will give you, he says to Jesus, on the top of a very high mountain, showing him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. All these things I will give you, says Satan, if you will fall down and worship me. Basically what Satan is saying is, I'll give you everything. Satan is saying, I will give you everything that that Satan imagines he has the authority to give. In other words, he looks at everything. The word is actually cosmos, the world. And that cosmos today, we would translate not only the world, but the whole universe. Cosmos. That's that's the Greek word that is used to describe what Jesus has presented. The whole cosmos. He said, I will give you all of this. And he says, if you will do this, if you will fall down and worship me. Now remember, worship doesn't necessarily imply religious worship. It means to fall down before. In an oriental context, you would fall down before. Remember the last time we looked at this word? It was the wise men. The wise men worshipped Jesus. And what it's actually telling us is that they fell down before Jesus. They didn't fully understand who Jesus was. They didn't know the fullness of the scriptures. They didn't know all that Jesus would teach and reveal in his life and ministry. They knew nothing about the cross, really, apart from the amazing realization that he would die. And so they gave him a gift that was appropriate for someone who was going to die. But they didn't have a full understanding, yet they fell down before him. And so Satan is taking that same word that was used just a few verses before this to say, if you will do that, if you will fall down before me and worship me, then I'll give you the universe. Now, if that happens to you this afternoon, brothers and sisters, uh, let me know. All right? I'll be very curious. That was a unique temptation. And Jesus responded once again by quoting this time from, again, from the Old Testament. And uh, the verse is is given to us. It's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. Jesus certainly knows his Bible. He certainly knew his Bible. In his humanity, he knew his Bible. And so he responds to each of Satan's temptations. Indeed, by responding with the scripture, not because the scriptures are magic words, not because it's a magic formula that every time we face a temptation, we pull out a verse of the Bible and the temptation will go away. That is not my experience. No, Jesus responds to each of these temptations and Matthew records it in this unique interaction because what Jesus does is uniquely important. He responded to each of these intensifying temptations by submitting himself as he was willing himself to do to the will of his father. It was his intention to do what his father had told him to do. And we see that right through Jesus' ministry. In fact, the, the life of the Trinity is this mutual submission. And we see a glimpse of, again, a little glimpse into the life of the Trinity here in the temptation of Jesus. I've uh, 
used this illustration before. Some of you might have heard it, but it's the temptations here show Jesus enduring temptation. Now, temptation is common to all of us. We all experience temptations. Jesus experienced temptations. But the temptations Jesus experienced were so unique and so extraordinary, they're recorded in the Bible. It's a little bit like this. If there was a a temptation meter, right? And the temptation meter goes from 1 to 10. And there's a knob. The devil's turning the knob. Bill Lovell is very likely to give in at 1, 2, 3, maybe on a really, really good day, 3.5. But Jesus, he endured on the temptation meter four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. In his physical weakness, 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, at the beginning of his ministry, the Lord Jesus endured Every single thing, every temptation, the highest level, not every individual temptation, but the highest possible temptation, the max of the meter, the everything Satan could do. And Jesus said no. Now, why is that important? Well, a couple of reasons. We've, we've actually had a good illustration this morning. I was so moved uh, during the presentation by Human Coalition when Carrie stood up and told us about her life experience and how she had faced very difficult decisions as a very young girl and she made the right decision. And what that tells us is Human Coalition is made up of people like Carrie who understand. And she... She understands. Carrie gave in to temptation. Carrie understands temptation. Human coalition understands temptation. Human coalition understands people sometimes make mistakes. Jesus is the perfect survivor of temptation. Uh, He's the survivor who endured the maximum temptation. And he said no, meaning that he went far beyond our experience of temptation. He relates to and understands temptation better than you and I will ever understand temptation. Because when we give out in three, four, five, he goes to ten and beyond. So he has an understanding of the reality of temptation that is infinitely beyond our ability to understand it. And that means that we have a faithful high priest who understands us, who cares for us, who loves us anyway. A perfect high priest who endured the maximum temptation. That's the the Savior, Jesus, whom you and I worship. That's the Savior in whose name we gather today. The, The Lord, the Savior, who endured the maximum temptation that he could endure.
Everything that Satan could throw at him, Jesus endured. And that matters. That matters when we pray. It matters when we confess our sins. It matters when we turn to him with our frustrations at our own continuing sinfulness. He's not surprised by it. He doesn't hate us for it. He understands. That's the one that we meet because he has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, he understands it better than we understand it ourselves. And Matthew wants us to know that about the one we're about to meet in the remaining 24 chapters. That's the Jesus that we're going to meet next week when Jesus talks about repentance. That's the Jesus that we worship. The Jesus who in his life experienced temptation. Now, verse 11, which you'd think would be kind of the exclamation point, and in a way it is, is almost like a throwaway line. Matthew's really good at this. He'll have two chapters setting up the delivery, the birth of Jesus, and the birth of Jesus is one verse. Well, that's what he does here again. Verse 11, the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This feels almost like a throwaway line. And yet, it's a part of the essential message that Matthew is teaching us. That Jesus in his life, experienced temptation and victory. And the reason that's important is because if Jesus did not refuse to give in to the sin, the temptation that was thrown at him, if Jesus had not, in chapter 4, done that, well, there wouldn't be a, there wouldn't be a Matthew chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, all the way through 28. There wouldn't be a New Testament. If Jesus had given in to temptation the way you and I do, there would be no gospel. Because he was the sinless Savior who endured the maximum temptation, who went mano a mano with Satan in the cage match because that Jesus did not sin and refused to yield himself to the temptations thrown at him, even though they were off the chart, because of that, there's a Matthew chapter 5. There's the, the, the continuing life and teaching of this Jesus. There's the cross. There's the resurrection. There's the ascension. It all flows in a very significant way from Matthew chapter 4. I have a favorite poet named John Milton. You might have heard of John Milton. Maybe you love John Milton like I do. I was an English minor in college. I've always loved John Milton. John Milton wrote wrote two very famous poems. One was called Paradise Lost, and the other one's called Paradise Regained. Paradise Regained isn't nearly as famous for some reason. The devil in Paradise Lost is a very interesting character. Everybody loves to read Paradise Lost. Paradise Regained is actually the better point, if you ask me. And it is the poem that makes this point. Milton, a Puritan, slightly confused Puritan possibly, but a Puritan, writing at the time of the same time as the Westminster Confession, Milton believed that it was in Matthew chapter 4 that paradise was regained. Because it was in Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus resisted the temptations, the cage match with the devil, that was the point at which Satan knew he was defeated. 
It was at that point that Satan knew everything he could do, Jesus could withstand. So Milton made the poetic point that the temptation of Jesus and his resistance to sin is actually the the point at which paradise was in a sense regained. Now I was sharing this with Leslie last night as we drove home from Bill and Shauna Camp Sauce. We had a lovely dinner with the camps. And as we were driving back, Leslie said, I told her that quote from Milton. Her response was, has anybody besides Milton ever said that? (laughs) (laughs) I want to assure all of you that that realization flows not just from a poetic genius, but it actually kind of sums up the idea of biblical theology. Because what we discover is that what happens in Matthew chapter 4 and what happens in the Gospel of Matthew, what we read about in the New Testament, what we read about in the Old Testament, all of it is pointing us not towards the stuff we do that leads to our salvation. In fact, what the Bible seems to record with great care and diligence is how messed up we are and how sinful we are. And how we give in to temptation. And how we fail again and again and again. You look at all the greatest figures of the Bible. Moses, David, Abraham, Adam. You look at all the greatest figures in the Bible. What is the one thing every one of them have in common? They're all sinners. We're all sinners. There's only one person who has ever lived who did not sin, who did not yield to temptation, who faced the devil full force, and by doing so, became qualified to do what only he could do. He alone, of every human being who has ever lived or will ever live, he alone, Matthew wants us to know, was qualified to walk the dusty roads from Galilee to the banks of the Jordan to Jerusalem to Golgotha to suffer and die on the cross. So what Matthew here in chapter 4 is doing is establishing the qualification of Jesus to do what Jesus did. He's the perfect Israel. He's the perfect Adam. He's the fulfillment of everything the prophets had promised. In this one human being is healing and hope and grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. Phenomenal patience. A holy God, absolutely a holy God who reveals himself to be gentle and lowly. Who reveals himself to love us in spite of our sin. He loves his people in spite of our sin, broken as we are. And what that means is we can turn to him with hope and confidence and, brothers and sisters, joy, a deep joy that our judge, our king, our Lord, our, the one who reigns over us actually loves us and is a suitable sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. 